1: This is
0: the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone. Thank you for joining us on Living History. And like always, don't forget to subscribe and to review us so that you don't miss out on any of the great content we've got coming your way. And today we've got something a little bit different, but something I think you'll find very special my guest is David Wallachinski who's the president of the International Society of Olympic Historians. And he's also the author of the complete book of the Olympics, both the summer and winter editions. And he's joining me today to talk about the history of the Olympic Games. So, David, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Thank you. Let's begin with the the story of the Olympics, the history of the Olympics, because it's quite a, an intriguing tale, the, the ancient Olympics and then its transition to... The, the modern games that we know today. Can you tell us a little bit about how the ancient games started and how they led eventually to the to the modern Olympics we know today?
2: Sure. We know that the ancient Olympics went back at least to 776 BC. If it was before that, it's possible, but we don't have records of that. So this was in Olympia uh, in, in Greece, and uh, it was a combination. You know, the athletic part of it was just part of what went on. There were speeches, there was uh, art. It was a big event. There is a myth that there was an Olympic truce, that there was no fighting going on during the Olympics. This is not true. What they did have is free passage. If two uh, you know, enemies were fighting, they would uh, pause to let the participants go through their area on their way to Olympia. And then they'd start fighting again. So, you know, this went on, it was finally, uh, and, and ended in, uh, 389 AD. It's quite a long journey. And then in the 1890s, Baron Pierre de Coubertin of France decided that he wanted to revive the Olympics, a modern version of the Olympics. Other people had, had done this, but he was the most persistent and the most, um, how can I put it? He was the most effective at, at doing this so he called the congress in 1894 he uh, created an uh, uh, international olympic committee he was pretty much it but there were 12 other members he felt that the first game should take place in in greece in athens and money was donated by by you know greek citizens and they in 1896 they they held the first modern games we've had olympics you know, at least every four years since then, except for the two world wars, the 1916 Olympics were canceled. And so were the Olympics of 1940 and 44. After 1992, the International Olympic Committee changed the schedule so that uh, it used to be until then that the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics were in the same year, but it was better for marketing to separate them. So starting in 1994, they had a separate Winter Olympics. And ever since then, We've had one four-year cycle for the Winter Olympics and another four-year cycle for the Summer
0: Olympics. Paint us a bit of a picture of what those ancient games would have looked like. What sort of events were taking place? How much does it relate to the, the modern Olympics we see today?
2: Uh, it's pretty different except for the sprint. I mean, you can go uh, – anybody can go there now and run on the same course that they, they ran. It's 192 meters and uh i've certainly run it and so of you know thousands and thousands of other people then they started adding other events there was boxing there was pancration which was kind of like uh mixed martial arts uh then as it got um you know corrupted there was chariot racing and and all sorts of odd things but the basic the very beginning was running just like just like now you know
0: was there a was the, the was the intention of the ancient Olympics the the same sort of noble purpose it is today to bring competitors together from from all corners and to to compete to be fastest strongest quickest was was that the intention of the uh, the ancient games as well
2: yes it was very much that you know it was beyond in sport but the sport was was big and uh, you could uh, if you won you know one of the championships in the ancient Olympics. Uh, You know, you would never have to pay for your ouzo for the rest of your life back home, you know. And, uh, you know, so it was it was a big deal. And, you know, these athletes, you know, I've been amused that people, why can't we go back to the amateur code like they had in ancient Greece? These guys didn't do anything but train. They were practically professionals. There's a lot of consistency in the way it was then and the
0: way it is now. And since the modern Olympics began, David, how have we seen that competition evolve? Because the, the, the Olympics of 1896 must have looked fairly different to the ones we see today. How have uh, things changed over the, uh, over the century? Well,
2: you know, back in 1896, there, was no, there were no national teams. You showed up and you competed. The 1900 and 1904 Olympics were disastrous because they were appended to World's Fairs. 1900 in Paris and 1904 in St. Louis, the United States. So the Greeks requested and got permission to hold uh, what was known as the Intercalated Games, the Interim Games in 1906 in Athens. And that actually uh, revived the games. And then finally, 1908, you had uh, the games in London and became a bigger deal. And there were a couple, uh, well, one, one story in particular was told around the world, even when it was just journalism. And that was the dramatic ending of the, uh, marathon where Dorando Pietri of Italy entered the stadium first and collapsed and, uh, had to be dragged, he had to be hauled up, which at that time was illegal. And so when the American Johnny Hayes entered, the Americans immediately uh, filed a protest and, and won. Pietri and Hayes then, you know, launched uh, you know, like an international tour of, you know, one-on-one marathons. And so the, the Olympics became much more well-known. And by the time you had, say, the 1924 Olympics in Paris, all of a sudden there were there were reporters from all over the world covering it. It was a bigger deal. It's developed. The the sports have changed dramatically since then, you know, back in the early days. Of course, running has always been there. Wrestling has always been there. But some of the in some of the early games, there were things like the plunge for distance or the swimming obstacle race or the high jump on horseback. You know, so these things. And actually, polo was in several Olympics.
0: How far do you think we'd have to go back, David, to see uh, an Olympic Games that is fairly representative of what we see today?
2: You know, you have media. The big difference is media. You know, back then, you didn't have television television. There was a certain amount of uh, in 1936 when the games were in Berlin, the Nazi Olympics, they, they were shown on open screens in, in different cities in, in Germany. And, you know, that was the first attempt to to have a mass audience. Now you have to say that, uh, you know, 98 percent of the people who follow the Olympics do so on television or online. And so it's a very different perception of what you want. The next Olympics a year from now will be in Tokyo 2020. And they are going to be probably during a heat wave, which is not very good for athletes. But it was demanded by television. This is what we want. And since most people watch on television, that took precedent over you know the heat. The last time Tokyo hosted the Olympics, 1964, they held them in October when it was cool.
0: I remember that from when the Olympics were held in Sydney in 2000. There were real issues with the broadcasters with um, event timings, trying to beam them back to... To North America and Europe at a, at, a, at a sensible time. Do you think that's, do, in your opinion, has that tarnished somewhat the, the noble nature of the Olympics that it's now so beholden to these media giants?
2: When you get to the athletes and there'll be 10,000, 11,000 athletes at the Tokyo Olympics, they don't care about that. They just want to do the best they can. And whether it's uncovered on, on TV or, you know, whether they finish in the lower half, doesn't matter. They just want to get their personal record. They want to do their best. And, you know, we watch on television and all the emphasis is on the medal winners. But the fact is that probably two thirds, maybe even three quarters of the athletes in the Olympics know that they're not going to win a medal. But they're going to be there anyway and they're going to do their best. NBC, the U.S. television network, supplies half of the revenue for the International Olympic Committee. And if you put all the broadcasters together, it's 70%. So clearly they have a lot of power.
0: You mentioned the athletes and their desire to achieve and to do the best they can. It seems to me that over the years, that's one thing that hasn't changed. There, there does seem to be a very a high standard set amongst those athletes and a very noble standard, notwithstanding a few controversies we've had over the years. But all in all, this seems to be a human endeavour that where people are genuinely striving for greatness and, and, and delighted to be participating. In your research, have you seen that about the Olympics, that that's carried through in the modern time?
2: Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, everybody wants to do their best. What you've seen is an expansion in the different kinds of sports that are included. I, I'm a fan of track, track and field athletics, because it's the universal sport. Almost everybody in the world at one point in their lives has tried to run 100 meters. Very few people have tried to swim 200 meters using the breaststroke or competed in luge or some of these new sports that they're adding now, you know, rock climbing, you know, these are obscure. They're for television, you know, and it's to get the youth audience. But, you know, having met a lot of these athletes, they're just as motivated as as anybody else.
0: We mentioned medal winners. Let's let's talk specifically about the medals because an Olympic gold, it's just iconic as an item, as a, as, a, as a reward for success. Talk to me about the importance of the medals. I assume that over the years the medals have changed in, the, in, in, in what's presented and, and how they're presented. Talk to me a little bit about the medals, what they symbolize, and then how they've evolved over the years.
2: Well, sure. You didn't really get medals until 1904. And, of course, that was pretty early. And, uh, you know, it's gold for first, silver for second, and bronze for third. It means a lot. You know, the the composition of the medals has changed. It's up to the organizing committee of the games to create the medals. I think for Tokyo, we'll be seeing recycled materials. You know, this is because the International Olympic Committee is making a big push right now for what they call sustainability. And part of that is making the medals out of something useful, you know, that can be reused, you know, using reused materials. It used to be in the early days, right up through the 19 20s that uh, I, I i watched all of the official films of the Olympics going back to 1912 and wrote reviews of them, and I was quite fascinated in the medal giving that in the early days the king or you know whoever was the most powerful member of the royal family would stand on a dais and the athletes would come up and he would lean down, give them a wreath, hand them the medal like that. Now it's fortunately that has changed. It's the athletes who are uh, um, you know, the, the medal givers look up to them. And I think this is a good change.
0: Talk to me about, um, I, in our notes before the uh, before this interview, we talked about some unexpected medal winners. And I think um, reading through some of these things you put here in, in your book as well, it's actually quite surprising that just the breadth of people that have gone to the Olympics and, and done really well. Tell us about some of the uh, unexpected medal winners, such as the Chicago Socialite who won the nine-hole golf competition in 1900. Tell us about that.
2: Oh, well, in the 1900 Olympics, they had ladies golf. This was the beginning of uh, women's athletics. And, you know, Margaret Abbott, you know, she didn't even know she had competed in the Olympics. She, you know, she took part in this golf tournament and won. It was just a low in 1900, 1904. It was not such a big deal because it was subsumed in, in the World's Fair. By the time you got to 1908, then it was a big deal. People knew they were in the Olympics. And but yet, you know, again, in in the days before uh, television, uh, you'd have a situation like Percy Williams, you know, who won 100 meters and 200 meters in the 1920s. And, you know, he went out for a walk and he saw a crowd around the hotel and he asked, you know, what's everybody doing? And they went, oh, we're waiting for Percy Williams to show up. <laughs> and you know, he got a good kick out of that. Uh, he didn't tell them who he was. So, yeah, media has changed everything.
0: David, what are those iconic moments to you in all the research you've done of more than 100 years of modern Olympics? What are those moments that really stand out? Obviously, I'm thinking about things like Jesse Owens uh, standing up to Hitler in 1936, uh, but what are those, for you, those key moments that are really the most emotional representations of the Olympics?
2: Some of the uh, iconic moments in the Olympics don't actually have to do with the competition. You have the Black Power salute of 1968, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Peter Norman, uh, this was that photo of them with their heads bowed and their, their clenched fists in the air. That's just beyond the Olympics. It was an iconic photo. Period. And so you know these things, they go beyond. And you, you you mentioned Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens. You know the nineteen thirty six Olympics were held in a uh, Nazi Germany, and they you know the Nazis said you know sent the Nazi leadership had sent out, oh the Americans they can't compete against us without their black auxiliaries. That's the way they put it. And so, you know, then Jesse Owens shows up, he wins four gold medals. But more important than that was that a German long jumper, Luz Long, befriended Jesse Owens publicly on the field with all the cameras running and people watching. And He helped Jesse Owens, said, why don't you start it? He, Jesse Owens almost didn't qualify for the final because he fouled twice. And Luz Long said, listen, you're so good, you can start uh, you know, Put your marker, a foot be what we would call a foot be, you know, behind and start from there. And Liz Long made a point of uh, congratulating Jesse Owens of being photographed with him. He was a blonde, blue eyed uh, Aryan, and yet here he was friending Jesse Owens. And it is interesting to note also, since you did bring up Jesse Owens. That as much as the Nazis uh, were, you know, belittling the black athletes, the African-American athletes, that the German people loved them. And uh, Jesse Owens could, you know, barely couldn't even leave his room without people ask German people asking for his autograph. You know, so there is this symbol of uh, the Olympics bringing people together.
0: It's just one of the great stories of, of the Olympics is, and you mentioned Lutz Long, and he was then obviously killed in Sicily in 1953. Yes. And I visited his grave really? on the island. Yeah. It's just such a symbolic story that not just Jesse Owens doing brilliantly and, and, and winning medals in the Olympics, but also that relationship between, between him and yeah. Lutz Long. Just again, it's, it's, it's the Olympics bringing out the best in people. And I hope I'm not being too... Uh, Too naive when I say that, but it is one of the few events we see in in the modern world that does tend to literally bring people together.
2: I agree. And uh, my, you know, one of my favorite moments, which often gets overlooked, is the parade of nations at the opening ceremony, when you have people from every country in the world standing in one place at the same time, whereas the United Nations is the elite of these countries. These are people who just for one reason or another are good at a, a sport, And so it's this mixture. There's poor people, there's rich people, there's tall people, there's short people. Uh, Every race, it's just a a wonderful moment or series of moments, the opening ceremonies.
0: How do you feel about some of the competitors we've had who were (laughs) potentially less than skilled compared to people from other countries? I'm thinking of things like Eddie the Eagle in the uh, Winter Olympics and... Eric the eel during the Sydney uh, yes. Games was a swimmer who you know did his best but wasn't particularly skilled. How do you? I, I've I've heard both sides of the argument that that the Olympics should be held to a high standard and you know we shouldn't have these people in there. And the opposite side of the scale is people saying it inspires everyone to to participate and to do their best. Where do you stand on that whole discussion?
2: Well, there's even there's even another argument for including people like that. Maybe not Eric the Eagle, you know, eel, but which is that. I get exposed to a higher quality. Some of these people come from a country where where there is no training. Faci- there are no tr- training facilities. And then, uh, you know, I, I interviewed, I, w- one of my jobs is that for the International Olympic Committee Museum in Switzerland, I conduct uh, video interviews with athletes who are now older than 80. And I interviewed Mary D'Souza, who was the first woman to represent India in the Olympics. She was a sprinter. And, uh, you know, she got there and, you know, she was in awe. She got to see Fanny Blankerskuhn, who was unbelievable. But more to the point, Americans like Harrison Dill, the great uh, Olympic athletes from the United States, came up to her and said, where are your starting blocks? And she said, what's a starting block? She didn't know about that. They would just dig a hole in the ground. And so the Americans donated uh, a starting block to Mary D'Souza. And, you know, uh, 70 years later, she still has it.
0: Just wonderful stories. David, what do you think the future of the Games is? You know, in this complicated world of sponsorships and television and and potential drug scandals, is the Olympics going to be able to maintain its reputation as this, this most noble sporting event? Is it still going to be important and relevant to people in the future? What do you feel about that?
2: Well, I think what, one of the things that the Olympics has going for it is that if you have 310 events, you're seeing the championship in in 300 events. The only sports we are not seeing the best are boxing and football, soccer. In every other sport, in every event, it's like, you know, 300 world championships, you know, in a two-week period. And you frankly don't know who's going to win. It's not scripted like so much of television. Uh, So there's there's always surprises. I think there's a lot of uh, bad things about the Olympics. But I think it's, you know, certainly the sponsors go over the top and uh, the doping is outrageous. I think what the Russians got away with is scandalous. And, but uh, at the same time, I think we make a mistake by only emphasizing the negative aspects.
0: Well, David, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really wonderful overview, especially since we're only a year out for the next Olympics. It's always the time when I think myself and everyone starts to get a bit excited when we we lead up to to the the next Olympics coming up. Uh, And if anyone wants to hear more of your fantastic stories and the history of the Olympics, they should definitely pick up your book, which is the complete book of the Olympics. But David, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you very much.